Hello and welcome to It's Always Winter But Never Christmas. <laughs> this is uh, the Oxford Centre for Fantasy spending time with C.S. Lewis and Tolkien and special guests on the theme of the holiday season. Now, as you can see, we have with us Malcolm Geit, poet and writer and Anglican priest, and Catherine Langrish, who is a novelist and fairy and folktale expert. And it's a great delight because they both are experts on all things Tolkien and Lewis. So we're going to have a lot of fun in this session now. So first of all, just thinking about Christmas, the first of these writers between Lewis and Tolkien that you tend to think of is, of course, C.S. Lewis. And I think he's almost got his own Christmas season now, thanks to the stage versions of The Lion and the Witch and the Wardrobe. I mean, that's for two reasons. Obviously, it has the wonderful snowy landscapes, which lend themselves to Christmas shows. But also it has the very special arrival of a Christmas guest in the middle. And we'll come to him in a minute. Uh -huh. um, but perhaps we'd like to start by saying, what are your memories of either Tolkien or Lewis in connection with your own Christmases back in the day? Did you have any special moments that you remember? Kath, I think you had a story that you told me. Yes, well, um, it just so happens that the um, on the Christmas I was eight, I think it was, my mother, I always used to get books for Christmas because I was a, a massive bookworm even then. And um, my mother must have picked for me one of the Narnia books. She cannot have realized that there was a series, I think, because she chose the silver chair. And so as I was opening my Christmas presents, uh, amongst all the Enid Blyton's, out popped this book, The Silver Chair. And it had a cover, the famous Puffin book, mm. with the mm. cover by Pauline Baines, featuring the underground caverns and lots and lots of little gnomes or goblins. And I looked at this and I shuddered. Um, I really put me off. I didn't think I was going to like this book at all, because um, a couple, about a year earlier, I'd come across a truly, truly dreadful fairy tale called The Hobbyers in my school reading book, um, in featuring, featuring extremely unpleasant little goblins. And this completely freaked me out. So I left the silver chair to the very uh, last of my Christmas books, but I really couldn't resist. I mean, it was a book I hadn't read and I think my mother knew that I would come around to it in the end. And uh, so I opened it and I was just blown away. You know, there I was in this, amazing world of, of uh, mm. fairy tale talking owls and castles and lost princes and green ladies and serpents and it was so exciting and so relatable and even though a fairy tale so very physical um i was just enchanted and um of course this was in the 60s and sort of c.s lewis was really huge um all my friends were reading the same books and we almost formed this bond at school where we'd talk about Narnia. Um, we, it wasn't even that we wanted to, we, we wanted to be there, we wanted to go there. It wasn't so much that we wanted to have adventures there, we simply wanted to be there. So it really was um, mm. one of the best Christmas presents in my life, I think, really. How about you, Malcolm? Did you ever yes. get something like that for Christmas? Uh, that's wonderful. I do love that thing, Kath, about just wanting to be there, not necessarily yes. just to have adventures there, but to be there. Yes, yes. The quality of the land itself. Well, being there and, or at least Christmas and the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe had a sort of early association for me, which is slightly odd because 
I was born in Nigeria and brought up there and in Zimbabwe until I was um, until I was ten. And although we some which year we went back to England on leave, it was almost always in the summer. But solemnly at Christmas, in both Nigeria and Zimbabwe, the expat community exchanged Christmas cards with robins in the snow, <laughs> and you know snow falling everywhere and fir trees and sleigh bells and reindeer and um i would be curious as a little boy what what is this white stuff was it oh that's 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 from 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 back home you know you'll get that way because they always referred to somewhere else as home whereas i you know i didn't know any other home other than the place with you know with with the the pawpaws and the bananas and the, and the beautiful palms you know so um then eventually one Christmas, you know, an African Christmas, I was, amidst all the other cards, I was given a copy of The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. And it, there was all this snow and fur coats and snow and fir trees. And so there was a sort of strange fusion in my mind going on between Narnia and England. And um, <laughs> I kind of wanted, I somehow thought perhaps England becomes more magical in the winter, you know, there was something. And uh, in fact, my favourite of the Narnia stories that I got, I got to later and remains my favourite is is the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, mm. and um, I was excited because that mentioned the actual name of a place in England as the start of the story, and that place was Cambridge, and um, eventually we suddenly left. We very suddenly when I was, I mean, I sort of was a bit too old, but but nine and we we very suddenly left Zimbabwe. My Ian Smith, as it was really easy then, had. Mm. To, declared UDI had essentially an illegal government. My father was opposed to his racist interference into the life of the university. Anyway, we ended up being expelled. Well, in fact, my mother and my sister left first. And the place we went to was Cambridge. And I had this secret excitement. Somewhere in Cambridge, there is a house with a picture of a Narnian ship. You know, <laughs> I need to find the house. And look at the picture. I tried the backs of various wardrobes. So yes, there was a sort of magical thing mm. and something about homecoming blended in because of Christmas and the snow. Wow. I think for me, um, my association is not from my own childhood, but from my children's childhood. So many years ago when um, they were very little, I mean, toddlers, their godfather lived at the kilns which is c.s lewis's home and where young professionals live during most of the year and then they move out to allow the c.s lewis society to have their summer courses anyway so whilst the godfather was living there the the um people living there decided to throw a christmas party for the children of their friends and the way the kilns works is that the attic has a um it's not up in a sort of through a ladder it runs along the eaves so mm. they took the back off a wardrobe oh wow and they put it over the attic door and then they dressed the inside of the attic with i suppose cotton wool and fairy lights and a lamppost and then, and then put fur well fake fur coats in the wardrobe so the children literally in cs lewis's house walked through a wardrobe into the attic <laughs> and that's my abiding memory of, of that which um, was was so special that's lovely so let's go back to the sort of the theme of christmas in the actual books and obviously in terms of c.s lewis and narnia we're talking about a world of talking animals that's how he <laughs> 
thought of it. That's that's the sort of nub of the idea behind it. But you get much more than talking animals mm. in Narnia. Mm. And you get some very strange guests turning up, um, including lots of guests from Greek mythology and others. But famously in The Lion and the Witch in the Wardrobe, you also get the arrival of Father Christmas. That's wonderful. What is he doing there? Now, can you help us? Can you help us with this? Well, yeah, I mean, I know, actually, uh, I mean, a lot of readers don't like Father Christmas's appearance in Narnia, and they feel he's sort of somehow out of place there. In fact, my husband says that as a little boy, he, he felt it was something wrong about it. Personally, I never minded, although I do think possibly Lewis was wise not to invite him back. But frankly, when a writer's come up with a wonderful phrase like always winter and never Christmas, I know they tell you to kill your darlings, but I don't think that's a darling that, you know, you, you can bring yourself to kill. So he had to do something. And um, let me just remind you how Lewis describes him. Mm. Um, you've got to remember where it happens. The beavers and the Pevensies have escaped from the, um, the dam. Yes, because... Um, the white witch is after them and they've realized that Edmund has betrayed them and they're hiding in a hole in a riverbank and they hear sleigh bells and they fear that it may be the white witch so Mr Beaver bravely goes out to look and of course he finds it's not the white witch it's Father Christmas with his brown reindeer and he calls them out and then we are told that what they see is a huge man in a bright red robe bright as holly berries with a hood that had fur inside and a great white beard that fell like a foamy waterfall over his chest. And then we're told that he was so big and so glad and so real that they all became quite still. So I think he knows that we, there's a little bit I've missed out where he's told that they knew who he was immediately, but he's not like you think of him here. He's this, he's got this extra presence. Mm. And I think that the Hollyberry comparison now reminds me of the Green Knight in Gawain, the Green Knight, Bertolac, right. who rides into Arthur's hall with a holly branch in his hand, the greatest in green when groves are bare, and combines pagan, giant, elf, and Christian in a single figure. Um, but I'm also reminded of other winter spirits. There's um, the Russian Morosko, Father Frost, and in Russian fairy tales, he's the white-bearded spirit of the snowy woods, um, who may, if you address him very politely, give you gifts instead of freezing you to death. I have a little picture here by Ivan Bilibin. You have to look a little bit carefully. Um, I don't know if you can see him, but there you will see the figure of Moroshko addressing a shivering damsel who's waiting for him in the woods. And this comes from um, a fairy tale collected by Alexander Afanak. I can never say this. Alexander Afanasyev. There you go. Um, and in this fairy tale, uh, a jealous stepmother persuades her husband to take his daughter out into the woods on a cold winter night and leave her to die in the forest. She says, drive Martha to her bridegroom, old man. Drive into the forest right up to the big pine that stands on the hill and there hand Martha over to Marosco, Frost. And uh, I thought I would just read what happens because um, here I have this ancient book of, of Russian fairy tales and um, the girl is left shivering in the forest. She sat and shivered. The cold had pierced her through. 
She would have cried aloud, but she had not strength enough, only her teeth chattered. Suddenly she heard a sound. Not far off, Frost was crackling away on a fur. From fur to fur he was leaping and snapping his fingers. Presently he appeared on the very pine under which the maiden was sitting, and from above her head he cried, Art thou warm, maiden? Warm, warm am I, dear father Frost, she replied. Frost began to descend lower, all the more crackling and snapping his fingers. To the maiden, said Frost, art thou warm, maiden? Art thou warm, fair one? Warm am I, Frost dear. Warm am I, father dear. Frost began cracking more than ever, and more loudly did he snap his fingers, and to the maiden he said, Art thou warm, maiden? Art thou warm, pretty one? Art thou warm, my darling? The girl was by this time numb with cold, and she could scarcely make herself heard as she replied, Oh, quite warm, Frost, dearest. <laughs> now Frost then takes pity on the girl. He wraps her up in furs and blankets. And next day, when the stepmother sends her father out to bring back the body, she's sitting there um, dressed in a, in a beautiful bridal shawl with um, a casket of jewels. And of course, this gets taken back. And um, then, of course, the stepmother sends her own daughters out into the woods with the hope that they will come back with a similar bounty. Only they're rude to Grandfather Frost and um, freeze to death. <laughs> so... Um, I checked and, and it seems that Morosko was originally a Slavic snow spirit or, or winter wizard. Um, apparently he was suppressed under the Soviet Union as being a bit too fanciful and sort of suspiciously sort of churchy, uh, which is strange. Um, but he's now very popular again. And uh, I've even found a picture of Vladimir Putin meeting an effigy of, of Morosko. Um, and he, he, he is very similar. I mean, he's got the long white beard, the fur coat, the fur hat, the boots. He carries a magic staff and he rides in a troika. But going back to Father Christmas, our Father Christmas has got very different origin from the American Santa Claus. He is not descended from St. Nicholas. He's a spirit or a personification of the Winter Festival. Mm -hmm. And um, you'll find that in the 16th century, a character called Father Yule used to parade through the city of York on the winter solstice, December the 21st, uh, riding a goat or being drawn in a carriage pulled by a goat, carrying a loaf of bread and a leg of lamb. And this custom was suppressed in 1572 by an annoyed archbishop. He appeared in masks and entertainments throughout the Tudor period um, as Captain Christmas or Sir Christmas. And in a court mask of 1638, um, in which Shrove tied in Christmas, sort of vie for supremacy, um, Christmas appears as an old reverend gentleman in a furred gown and cap who proclaims, I am the king of good cheer and feasting, though I come but once a year to reign over baked, boiled, roast and plum porridge. So I think if you can set aside the very commercial Father Christmas that we're unfortunately stuck with today, um, his appearance in Narnia is a lot easier to accept. If you think of him as having this ancestry of ancient winter spirit, um, whose appearance signifies celebration and feasting in the middle of very harsh weather. I think it's mm. easier to sort of accept, if you've got problems with this at all, which I don't, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> I was always impressed by the, the gifts that he comes with. It's not like oh. the ones that I got at the end of my bed, you know, a not sword, quite, yeah. a bow and arrow, but also a tea service. 
Very useful. Yes. Oh, yeah. and not to mention, not to mention um, mending Mrs. Beaver's say, well, giving oh. Mrs. Beaver an entire sewing machine. Indeed. Exactly in the drawings, like the ones my mother had and used. Uh, my mother actually, in appearance, was very like Mrs. Beaver. She's quite small and round and often sitting at a singer sewing machine. So I always loved that. No, I, I have to say, I delighted in the whole Father Christmas episode. It didn't, partly because I was so little when I got that first line, The Witch in the Wardrobe, that I needed help. And my mother and father between them read it to me. And it was partly why I think I was associated my mother with Mrs. Beaver, who was very pleased about this. <laughs> and um, my father, um, you know, did all the voices wonderfully and did a very good Father Christmas. I was very excited by that episode because I, I had an ear and an eye for detail. And I had remembered that the White Witch had instructed uh, her minions not to take the bells when she went on the sleigh oh, yes. in pursuit. So I thought, oh, bells, is it? But I thought there were no bells. And then it's a wonderful dramatic moment where just where they think is to be the most danger mm. comes this jovial, convivial, wonderful spirit of encouragement. With and, as you um, say, yeah. Yeah, I just, so, so I mean, I, I, I'm totally with you, Kath, on the let's not go back to uh, an American tradition or even St. Nick in that sense. Certainly not the diminutive little figure of the night before Christmas. There is a, this, this is Father Yule. This is, this is mm. a, a great embodiment of the kind of warmth and, and feasting. And um, the whole essentially human spirit that says, when things are bleak and cold outside, we shall be snug. We shall have warmth. We shall have, it's, 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 it's you know, the person who gets that snugness and warmth and indeed that whole spirit so well as Dickens, of course, and, yeah. you know, in some ways Dickens convivial green clad Christmas spirit in the Christmas Carol is, is, is very much there. There's a brilliant short story, which I'm sure Lewis knew, um, oh, not short story, it's, really, it's just a little anecdote almost, um, in uh, um, Chesterton's Tremendous Trifles where Chesterton meets Father Christmas. Oh. He finds him in a little uh, shop in a dingy back street in Battersea. And um, and uh, he's very worried about it. And he says, oh, you know, I, I, I'm not very well. He, he, he refuses to, to, to take money for a toy that, that Chesterton is buying. He says, I can't, it's a newfangled thing, taking money, I can't do it. I have always given things away. And then Chesterton says, why, you might be Father Christmas. He says, well, <clears throat> I am. Uh, I'm not very well at the moment. I've been declining. And then suddenly Charles Dickens walks into the shop and says, but he was dying in my time. Good to see you, Father Christmas. And then Sir Richard Steele walks in and says, but I believe he was dying in my time. <laughs> and, and then Robin Hood steps in and the whole shop, it's, the story's called The Shop of Ghosts, is full of people going right back into English history and literature for whom this figure has been important all of whom were slightly worried that he was dying in their time you know, and that he needed reviving. So, so anyway, all of that. But I mentioned the joviality and um, there's a very interesting um, thing that, as I'm sure you know, um, deep and important as was the friendship uh, between Lewis and Tolkien and vital as was Lewis's role in being, as Tolkien himself said at one point, his only audience, his only readership and asking more for him. Um, Tolkien was to some degree out of sympathy with the Narnia project. And one of the things that he found most irritating explicitly was Father Christmas. And that was because, in spite of his having produced these wonderful Father Christmas letters. <laughs> but the reason was to do with his sense of genre and form. And he didn't think you could mix mythologies. He simply thought you cannot have forms and Father Christmas in the same 
secondary world. There's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a dissonance and a mismatch. Now, Michael Ward in his wonderful book, Planet Narnia, has, has ably defended uh, Lewis by pointing out that, as it were, each of the seven chronicles is under the, the, the sort of presiding genius or tutelar spirit of one of the medieval seven heavens, one of which, of course, is the sphere of Jove or Jupiter, from which we get the word jovial. And um, also ideas, Jupiter is associated, of course, with kingship, with royalty, with but through kingship and royalty, he's associated with largesse, generosity, feasting, and he's the opposite, as it were, of the freezing Saturn. He's, the, you know, so uh, according to to Ward's theory, um, the sign under which the whole of the line, the witch, and the wardrobe is Jupiter, just as the sign of the dawn treader is Sol, the sun, or the sign of the silver chair is the moon, and he therefore thinks that. That, that Lewis produces a kind of consistency of feel throughout the book by taking the associated cluster of ideas in relation to Jupiter. So kingship is obviously a great theme of the thing. I mean, the whole point of the story in some sense is that they're going to be crowned as the kings and queens in Care Paravel and they're on that journey. Good feasting, the feasting produced by Father Christmas is the prime thing. But in that book, you constantly get the shadow side of each thing. So the shadow side of the good feasting, the false Christmassy gift, is the, the gift of the Turkish delight of the Queen. And she also promises a false kingship yes. to Edmund. So you get, you get the, it's a wonderfully Augustinian book, you get the sense that all the evil in that book are, are corruptions of an initial good. There's a good version of everything mm. that has an enormous yes waiting behind everything, every small perversion that has to be said no to. There's the big yes version of it. So there's the feast at Care Paravel. And so in a sense, Father Christmas in that that sheer bonhomie and largesse and giving and serious giving with no strings attached, no exaction, no, is the kind of good counterbalance to the, the parallel um, encounter in snowy woods with a quasi-mythical figure and that she is a kind of snow queen of course so in a sense mm -hmm. i think lewis has taken two big mythical figures i'm sure your russian counterparts are all in there just as the the hans anderson you know, the snow queen is there yeah. and and he's he's used the one to counterbalance the other so mm -hmm. i think the whole father i mean i don't i don't think you, it would be the same book if you omitted that episode i think it's a very important part in the whole constellation of goodness that is clustering around the image of the jovial and and all um all giving king i like that and and uh, i'm now seeing the um father christmas's wonderful cup of hot strong tea with cream in it as the um the counterpart or the or the opposite of the snow the snow queen's um drink which i think she she sort of um she it's not really a drink, is it? But she sort of drops from a bottle some some yeah, liquid right. as it falls and uh, produces, I think, Turkish delight at the bottom. Maybe it's no, it's 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 a it is. She also a produces a drink. She also yeah, but that's right, or, or something like that. Yes. Yeah. And, uh, um, yeah. So so that's definitely not not very good for Edmund either. <laughs> so I, I, anyway, I, I have a pre. I mean, I've always enjoyed Father Christmas, and I mean. Obviously, I don't like the toy Santa. It's always interesting for me, of course, particularly since my hair sort of turned white at this time of year, when I'm walking along the streets or in trains, very small children tug their mothers um, <laughs> and point excitedly to me. And I, I say something, 
I'm on holiday before the big season, you know. Wonderful. <laughs> 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 Uh, I think that's a wonderful image to uh, take away with us from the uh, Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. But if we were um, looking to do more Christmas shows with a, a C.S. Lewis feel, are any of the other books that he writes lending themselves to this season? I was thinking, Kath, of your mention of The Silver Chair, which um, actually does have a wintry Yule Ooh. feel to it, doesn't oh, it? Oh, yes, yes, yes. Well, apart from the fact that I was given the book at Christmas... Mm -hmm. And it would have been a snowy Christmas because it was probably sort of 1963, 64, yeah. which was very, very snowy. Um, yes, I mean, there's nothing quite so cosy, is there? This is what Malcolm was saying about, about sitting in a lovely warm house, reading about a freezing winter journey. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's not necessarily Christmas time because the Giants' Feast in Harfang is, is called the Autumn Feast, but they do get there through a blizzard. Um, and they are and, eating, just to mention, they're eating turkey. Oh, yes, yes, I've forgotten about that. As Although well as, and humans, but, you know, turkey. Yeah, the first well, they also eat sort of a talking deer, I think, don't they? Yeah, talking yeah, it's yeah. very sad. Um, but yes, and, and I just remember, and I still enjoy this, um, reading about, you know, their miserable struggle up the wet, soaking, snow-filled ledges, you know, arriving at the gate of Harfang, bruised and miserable and tired and crotchety. Um, and then being welcomed into this, um, you know, in, into the apparent, the deceptive warmth and shelter of Harfang. And what always struck me even when I was a child was the sheer physical pleasure of um, the contrast, if you like, of, of Jill having a bath in a giant tub that's so large you can swim in it. Hot water, so much that you can swim in it. And then getting out and having an enormous, like acres of giant towel. Uh, on which you, all you have to do is roll around in front That's of the wonderful. fire to get dry. And frankly, anybody that anybody of my generation and possibly your generation, Malcolm, who who lived in a pretty sort of chilly house without double glazing, um, you know, fired mostly, no, heated mostly by coal fires, you know, getting out of a bath to get yourself dry in a pretty chilly bathroom, the idea of being able to just roll around on a on a great big towel in oh. front of a huge fire was was wonderful. I mean, I always wanted to try yeah, that. I, I, I always think, you know, all the sort of physical pleasures in those books are partly driven, I think, by the really quite dire experience of England immediately after the war in terms <coughs> of rationing, not a lot of fuel for heating, drafty mm -hmm. rooms, short commons. To give the children, at least in these books, these wonderful feasts mm -hmm. uh, and, and unashamedly glorious feasts. So there's, I suppose the other, I mean, perhaps this is a bit... Um, Wicked, I don't know, but uh, another feature you might think from the Harfang scenes that might be familiar to some people from Christmas parties is um, is Puddleglam having a little bit more of the bottle than is good for him, <laughs> and getting himself a bit a bit. Well, there's a wonderful bit where he keeps on trying to say, but can't quite manage to say, "I'm a respectable Marsh Wiggle," mm. and he says, "Respectable, I'm a respectable." And then, of course, he makes out that he was only pretending in order to, you know, and, and you know, there's a, it's a lovely bit of sort of weakness in Puddleglum. I mean, Puddleglum is one of my my favourite characters in that book, and totally. the, the lovely idea of the sort of the apparently gloomy person who has this inner courage, and when he seizes on a thing that's really the case, changes mm. the course of the yeah. the story. So, yeah. yeah, I think that's true. I mean, thinking about the other books, um, they don't have. I mean, the, the obvious thing to say if we want to speak. Of course, he was very 
careful many times over Lewis to say that it's not an allegory but a supposal and that he's only trying to think of supposing that the God Almighty were to be be born into another world which was a world of animals of course he would be a lion and so on but even given that it's a supposal and not an allegory it is quite striking that there are no infancy narratives for Aslan Mm -hmm. Aslan always appears I mean in that sense I mean although he draws on John a lot in terms of the narrative arc um, the the Narniad is much more like Mark's gospel of course Mark's symbol is the lion um, where when Mark's gospel Jesus appears immediately he's there you know John the Baptist proclaims him and he's he's there he's adult he's fully formed he's come to proclaim the kingdom, which mm -hmm. is exactly what Aslan does, to use it, the use. I mean, you know, it's so it's an it's quite Markian sort of feel feel to that. Of course, Mark doesn't have the the infancy narrative, so we don't have that. And I don't think Lewis could have done it successfully. And I, I think he knew he couldn't. Mm -hmm. So the closest he gets to it, in some sense, of another transformation, which isn't so much Christmassy. In fact, it's kind of more Eastery. But is 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 the appearance. Um, at the end of the Lord, the dawn treader as the lamb um and um a direct direct quotation from john 21 come and have breakfast um and the fish grilling on on, on the thing and the, and the those who encounter him getting out of a boat in order to do so and so on mm. so that, that that that's very um very clear but i i i think the christmas associations with the others are much more to do with those of us who were lucky enough to have these books doled out to us with a year in between, yes. waiting desperately for the next one and waiting for Christmas to come so that the next book would come. <laughs> uh, even though, you know, I was reading them after the series had been completed, my parents sensibly um, didn't didn't go out and get the box set. You know, they they let me live with the book for quite a while and then they gave me the next one. I, um, I longed to own the box set, but I never, ever did. Oh, I, I eventually bought it. Of course, yeah. I, mean, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I've lived with and read and reread these books sort of all my life. So then, of course, I did have the pleasure of reading them to my children. And um, uh, yeah, though for me, I think the Christmas, the Christmas side of it is much more to do with the snugness, the conviviality, the sense that we shall have a feast. I mean, there's a wonderful description of the feast that's set out and renewed every day on Aslan's table oh, yes. at, the, at the end of the dawn treader and yeah. the bird and you know, and that I think that lay that defended me. I, I mean, I wouldn't have been able to say this at the time, but it defended me imaginatively and at a very deep level from docetism and you know Jesus wasn't really in the flesh or from an over spiritualized religion, from any sort of pure of the goodness you know of what what dante calls the holy and glorious flesh i think i think all that good honest thoroughly enjoyable unashamed celebratory feasting yeah. around something holy yeah they are there. very I mean, the, uh, of course the direct our christmas reference in the narnius in the narniad lewis saves for the very last one um where he deliberately makes it a stable into which they're all driven, but the stable really is the door into, in a sense, contains that. And they realize inside the stable is the whole of Narnia and then Aslan's country. Mm -hmm. And it's left to Lucy, of course, who's always the the most perspicuous. And I mean, her name, Lucy, means light. She always sees to the heart of everything, Lucy. She says, in our world, mm -hmm. and, and a stable in our world once contains something bigger than the whole world. Mm -hmm. 
Lewis is probably thinking of that beautiful line of John Donne's to Mary, actually, where he says, immensity cloistered in thy dear womb. Mm. Um, so, yeah, there's a lovely little reference just at the end of the Narniad to the stable. Yes. So whilst we're in the stable, um, perhaps, Malcolm, you might want to um, read us the Nativity poem by C.S. Lewis himself. It's a poem which you might have met in an anthology, but let's yeah. enjoy the season with oh, it's his just, poetry. I love this. I love this. He's thinking about the beasts at the stable. It's a poem of great humility, actually, but also and of a kind of quiet humour, self-deprecating humour. The Nativity. Among the oxen, uh, like an ox, I'm slow. I see a glory in the stable grow, which with ox's dullness might at length give me an ox's strength. Amongst the asses, <laughs> stubborn I as they, I see my saviour where I looked for hay. So may my beast-like folly learn at least the patience of a beast. Among the sheep, I like a sheep have strayed. I watch the manger where my Lord is laid. Oh, that my buying nature would thence win some woolly innocence. Mm. That's a fabulous poem. Win thence, yeah. Yeah. Um, Malcolm, you mentioned that he also has uh, a more serious riff on this uh, in his thinkings about Milton's Ode. Uh, yeah, it's, that, it's but... kind of very curious thing. I don't know if I've got a mark. So, so um, Milton, as you know, wrote uh, a poem called uh, Ode on the Morning of Christ's Nativity, mm. um, which is a long, beautiful, I'm just hoping I've got the, the, the Lewis poem here. I had it marked. but um, So uh, it's a long, beautiful poem, which starts off in Spenserian stanzas and asks to come ahead of the Meiji and be at the stable. And then um, and then it moves to a different meter, a rather beautiful lyrical meter. It was the winter wild when the heaven-born child or meanly wrapped. And it, it, it has the idea that, um, uh, that, that when Christ was born, this is Milton has this early idea. It's a, it was a classical idea that, that, that um, there was a moment when Christ was born, when everything was completely still, mm. when the angels sang and proclaimed peace, that there was peace, that every war ceased. Every For a moment, every spear was held in the hand and not released. And it was the turn of the tide. Everything was going to change from here. And all over, all over the empire, so the story went, people, as it were, paused for breath. Breath, hear me. So Lewis wrote this rather extraordinary poem, The Turn of the Tide, in which he not only imagines the world stilled, but he imagines a wave, as it were, of breathless stillness. Is it, you know, this is the turn, this is the moment when the creator from beyond all things enters the creation and the entire creation is thus transfigured and can never be the same again. I'll just give you a few phrases of it because I think it's, it starts and ends in Bethlehem. It's a poem that starts in Bethlehem goes out to the furthest ends of the cosmos and then comes back to Bethlehem. I'll just, I'll just give you a bit of the opening and the, and the closing, the Bethlehem bits, because they're really beautiful. Breathless was the air over Bethlehem, 
black and bare were the fields, hard as granite the clods, hedges stiff with ice, the sedge in the vice of the pool like pointed rods. And the deathly stillness spread from Bethlehem. It was shed wider each moment on the land, through rampart and wall, into camp, into hall, stole the hush, the tongues were to stand. And he goes out and everybody pauses, there's a complete stillness. And he imagines this stillness as deathly, like people are thinking, is this it? Time has stopped for a second. Is this the end? The cosmos is coming to an end. And that's why it's deathly, it's breathless. And there's one sense, of course, in which it is. The old order is, is, is coming to its end there. And then he goes right out, he imagines great salamanders in the sun, brandish as they run, tails like the Americas in size, were stunned by it. And then they're all, everything is completely still, and they wonder if this is the beginning of the entropy, of, of the unworking of everything. Um, the death had almost come, the tide lay motionless at ebb. And then there's a gap in the poem, and he picks up the thread again. It's like a, literally a pause of blank paper. Like a stab at the movement over crab and bowman, over maiden and lion, came the shock of returning life. The start and burning pang at heart, setting galaxies to tingle and rock, and the lords dead to breathe, and the swords were sheathed, and a rustling and a relaxing began, with rumour of noise of the resuming joys on the... On the nerves of the universe it ran, then pulsing into space with delicate dulcet pace came a music. This is from the Milton Ode. Milton says, you know, um, ring out ye crystal spheres once bless our human ears. If ye have power to touch our senses, so, you know. So now the music is coming. A music infinitely small and clear, but it swelled and drew near and held all worlds in the sharpness of its call. And now divinely deep and louder with the sweep of quivering and inebriating sound. Wonderful. And so it comes this great revel and mirth and joy in all the spheres. And then the poem ends like this. So death lay in a rest. But at Bethlehem, the blessed, nothing greater could be heard than a dry wind in the thorn, the cry of one newborn and cattle in stall as they stirred. But of course the one newborn has a capital O. It's a wonderful kind of out from the moment in the stable to the end of the cosmos and then back to the dry wind and just the cry of the babe, but everything has changed. I think what's extraordinary about that is that's not a voice I associate with C.S. Lewis. Um, the first one, the nativity with the calling himself an ass is totally yeah. something, yeah. You, yeah, totally in, in his, you know, wheelhouse. But that, uh, I think it's quite, no, I must go away and read that again. It's, it's great. I mean, he's partly under Milton. He's allowing himself a Miltonic moment. But mm. there's also, there's another side. I, I wrote the, the chapter on Lewis as a poet for the for the Cambridge Companion. So I spent some time really soaking myself in Lewis's poetry and, uh, and benefited from that enormously. But one of the things I became aware of is that um, if you want to know where all the deep, rather mystical, imminent God, Barfieldian stuff went in Lewis when he didn't quite put it in the more orthodox book, the answer is he went into the poetry. He's very Owen Barfield, very sort of original participation and final participation and organic unity. He, he, Lewis the poet allows himself a much more 
a much richer sense of, um, you know, Lewis the theologian is often at pains to 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 emphasise the transcendence of God and the and the failure of every worldly thing in respect of God's transcendence, but Lewis the poet allows himself a kind of cosmic mysticism, which I think is rather lovely. Mm, mm. Thank you, Malcolm. That's lovely. So leaving C.S. Lewis in his mystical space, that's, this is a good moment to turn to Middle Earth. Now, when I um, first thought of this, my initial reaction was, um, okay, Middle Earth doesn't have Christmas or doesn't have a Christmas style festival, but actually Kath has put me right. So Kath, in Tolkien, in the legendarium, that side of him, where do you go to celebrate Midwinter Festival? Well, um, yeah, there, it's not immediately obvious, perhaps, but there are. Middle Earth does actually have a fairly extensive um, Yuletide or Winter Festival tradition. Uh, and these are touched on, or perhaps a few different traditions, but they seem to me to be sort of linked. Um, they, You'll find them touched upon, never really sort of brought out particularly in the hobbit in the lord of the rings and its appendices and a couple of other places too so for example you have to delve into the appendices sometimes in appendix d we learn that the shire celebrates two yule days which are the last and first days of the old and new years um, these days were counted as outside the months so the first month of the new year was named after yule and the last month was for Yule. And this is a quote in full, Tolkien adds, Yuletide was six days long, including the last three days and first three days of each year. And since the Shire calendar is based upon the Numenorean calendar known as King's Reckoning, I think we can probably safely assume that some sort of midwinter festival was also celebrated in Gondor, but that's, you know, that's an assumption. Anyway, so in The Hobbit, um, <clears throat> When Gandalf and Bilbo are returning from the Lonely Mountain, right at the end of the book, um, they are accompanied by Bjorn and they stay at Bjorn's house um, for some time on their return journey and celebrate Yule there. Um, and it says Yuletide was warm and merry there and men came from far and wide to feast at Bjorn's bidding. Okay. Which I think would probably be rather nice because there'd be plenty of roast meats and honey. And at the, the end of the return of the king, Frodo, and this is after the scouring of the Shire, uh, Frodo and his friends uh, are delighted to discover stores of goods, um, food, drink and tobacco, which have been stashed away by Saruman's ruffians and hidden in various places like the holes at Mickle Delving. Oh, and in the old quarries at Scarry. I presume it's Scarry rather than Scary. So that there was a great deal better cheer that Yule than anyone had hoped for. So the hobbits, I think we can safely assume, have a pretty good time at Yule. The Rohirrim, it turns out, also celebrate Yule, but the only description I can find of it is in Appendix A of the Lord of the Rings, and it can hardly be typical, at least I hope not, um, because during the long winter in the time of Helm Hammerhand, Helm's Deep was besieged uh, by the Dunlendings, um, and we have, in Helm's Deep there was a great hunger after Yule. Helm's son Hama is lost in the snow after a, a foray and Helm goes mad with grief and dressed in white would stalk like a snow troll into the caps of his enemies and slay men with his hands. The Dunlanding said if he could find no food he ate men and there's a little quote here 
from <clears throat> Appendix A. Helm had a great horn, and it was marked that before he sallied forth, he would blow a blast upon it that echoed in the deep. And then so great a fear fell on his enemies that instead of gathering to take him or kill him, they fled away. One night, men heard the horn blowing, but Helm did not return. In the morning, there came a sun gleam, the first for long days, and they saw a white figure standing still on the dike alone. There stood Helm, dead as a stone, but his knees were unbent. Yet men said that the horn was still heard at times in the deep, and the wraith of Helm would walk among the foes of Rohan and kill men with fear. So not terribly Christmassy story, but it was you. Except that's, there is a tradition of Christmas ghost stories, isn't there? There is also a tradition of Christmas ghosts, and I think that's a pretty good Christmas ghost. In fact, it's all very northern and saga-like, uh, which is unsurprising if you think that winter festivals do tend to be about celebrating and anticipating the return of the sun and the rebirth of the year in the cold, dark season. And obviously, the further north you go, probably the more, the more important these festivals become. And so quite uniquely, I would say, for Middle Earth, the Dwarfs Winter Festival celebrates a named individual. Durin's Day occurs on the first day of the last moon of autumn on the threshold of winter. And the legend tells us, this is, this is relying upon the appendices again, uh, tells us how Durin slept alone until in the deeps of time he was awakened. He's the great ancestor of the Dwarfs and lived so long he was known as Durin the Deathless. Yet in the end, he died before the elder days had passed and his tomb was in Khazad-dûm, but his line never failed. And five times an heir was born, so like to his forefather that he received the name of Durin. He was indeed held by the dwarfs to be the deathless that returned. And so I think here, like Christmas, in Durin's day, we have a winter festival that hangs upon a single personage who died and yet is reborn. Just a thought. That's interesting, yeah. Uh, my final, uh, the final um, example that I could find, which um, there may be others, but this was this was the uh, the result of my scouring of the uh, of the legendarium. Anyway, I'm not sure this is in the legendarium, but in the Book of Lost Tales, the elves of Tol Eresia celebrate a winter festival called Turohalmi, or log drawing, which apparently involved games in the snow, the gathering of logs on sleighs, songs drinking, and the telling of tales. So. Now, do you know, I'm so thrilled that I think there can't be a Tolkien fan out there listening to this who won't feel they've not got their money's worth. Because yeah. I've never I've never heard all of that put together quite so carefully. No, I never have. Uh, yeah. I remember you, Yule with Bayon, and that seemed absolutely right with Bayon. So, and Yule is really important. I mean, obviously, there's no way that, I mean, Tolkien would never have done, and never in a million years have done what Lewis did and introduced the word Christmas, you know, no. like that. He does because the whole magic of of Tolkien's thing persists on completely letting that secondary world be itself. Now, obviously, Tolkien's a deeply, deeply versed and 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 profoundly faithful Christian, and therefore, the great themes of light and darkness, the great themes of of of, of resurrection, indeed, um, and of course, the profound theme. I mean, if I were to associate it with the 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 the, the Lord of the Rings, certainly with any kind of arc of 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 the great christian salvation story it's much more about um good friday and then eventually you know the the catastrophe of, of resurrection i mean 
the the epic towards the end i mean the whole epic if you think about it is an epic of letting go that always strikes me as being an extraordinary thing if you think of how Tolkien had within his grasp and embedded in his imagination the the mythology uh, the entire mythology of the west and the north for sure and lots of others as well and all the great quests i think without exception somebody may correct me on this but all the great quests associated with a treasure or a magical object of any kind are quests of acquisition you know jason's got to go and get the golden fleece people have got to go and get the apples from the garden of the hesperides the hero is always going out to acquire something and that something brings with it magical powers and makes the hero more of a hero or gives them life or whatever it is or they brings restoration to their kingdom. Tolkien is unique in writing an epic of letting go. And that's why it's such a prophetic book now for the, the age of consumption, an age that's consuming itself to death, an age that's relying on the acquisition of various kinds of quasi-magical quasi technologies just to extend life but only spreading it out like butter spread over too much bread, you know. Whereas the heart of this thing is the recognition that the real liberation will come from a renunciation, from a letting go. I mean, I think theologically that's to do with kenosis. I think it's to do with, you know, they who was found in formic with God, he did not cling to it. He emptied himself. But the whole ethos of it is an ethos of, um, of emptying rather than, than than filling, which makes it less appropriate to a Christmas thing, but, but very appropriate to 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 um, the mysteries of, uh, of of Good Friday and Easter. I think that's where I'd. No, but it, it is it is appropriate to Christmas. I mean, it's not appropriate to Santa Claus and presents, but it's appropriate to the yeah. idea of God mm. taking on human flesh as a tiny. Oh. Oh, absolutely. That's yes, and that's true. completely yeah. what you see in the nativity plays and everything. That's that's oh, yeah, yeah. what they yeah, would all regard that. as the message of Christmas. I'm sure both Tolkien and Lewis. Low here, yeah, brought the virgin's womb. You know. Yeah. 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 So, absolutely. No. No. There's nothing. I wonder. About, you you mentioned my doing a poem. Actually, this might be a really appropriate moment to throw a poem in, if I may. Oh, off you go. Throw of a poem my, in. Yeah. Um, I wrote a poem some time ago called uh, was, was published in my singing book called Descent and um, I obviously because it's a poem printed in the page I had to spell the word descent and I've spelt it D-E-S-C-E-N-T -E -E because it okay. was about self-emptying this descent but I wanted when I read it people to hear the other sense of descent to descent from something mm -hmm. and the idea here is that just as talking reverses the, the legendarium so there's a sense in which in my view the the, the Christian story uh, changes the great sort of classical late pagan anti uh, late pagan antiquity the kind of classical narrative of the olympian gods the gods on high and the religious quest as being an ascent um and uh, and the gods being in every respect superior to human beings and you know they are the immortals we are the mortals they 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 are perfect and flawless and we 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 are subject to change and decay so i wrote this poem which just has a series of contrasts in a sense between the religious the, the the religions around to which god as it were in the act of incarnation says i beg to differ i dissent but uh, so so th this is it it's quite a short poem um it's written in english suffix which is um a meter george herbert liked to use and the reason i chose it is that th it's four stress lines but the last line of each quatrain is just four words, so it diminishes. 
descent. They sought to soar into the skies, those classic gods of high renown, for lofty pride aspires to rise. But you came down. You dropped down from the mountains sheer, forsook the eagle for the dove. The other gods demanded fear, but you gave love. Where chiseled marble seemed to freeze their abstract and perfected form, compassion brought you to your knees. Your blood was warm. They called for blood in sacrifice and victims on their altars bled. When no one else could pay the price, you died instead. They towered above our mortal plane, dismissed this restless flesh with scorn, aloof from birth and death and pain. But you were born, born to these burdens, born by all, born with us all, astride the grave, weak to be with us when we fall and strong to save. That's lovely. Thank you so much, Malcolm. I just Sorry. I adore <laughs> hearing you read poetry. It's just wonderful. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so just to finish with, uh, with Tolkien before we move on to the whole question of fantasy and Christmas in wider frame, um, I had a little rootle around in things that weren't part of the, strictly speaking, the legendarium. And remembered that in um, the Smith of Wootton Major, mm. the beginning of that story takes part of uh, the big cake, special cake being made for the feast of the good children, mm. which sounds oh, yeah. like the quintessential Christmas thing, if ever there was one. Mm. Uh, perhaps more like the St. Nicholas um, festival that a lot of the continental countries um, celebrate at the beginning of December. So, that, I think, had an element of Christmassy about it. But, of course, you know, the the big one is the fabulous Ray. The Father Christmas Letters, um, which is edited by uh, Bailey Tolkien, who is Christopher Tolkien's second wife. Uh, I hadn't actually looked that up until today. Um, I've got, I think this must be a, a first edition, actually. My family was, my husband's family were friendly with Tolkien back in the 20s. So we always got like first editions of everything in the family because, um, which is great. But I pulled this off the shelf. Um, and as you can see, this is based on a family tradition in the Tolkien mm. household mm. where every year Tolkien would well, no, Father Christmas would write a letter to the children. And um, what I find fascinating about this is you see all sorts of Tolkien skills coming into it, his skills as a calligrapher, his skills as a uh, artist, his humour. Um, he had quite a broad sense of humour. Some people found it a bit irritating, but actually it really suits a kid's sense of humour. You know, people falling down and you know having accidents and all that kind of thing. But as you read it, what is really interesting is how it gets more and more complicated in mm. the various worlds that are breaking into the sort of, you know, Father Christmas's workshop. And there's a, in the middle of the 30s, because each letter is um, dated, there's a big battle with the goblins. It's almost as if Tolkien cannot help himself. He has to go there. <laughs> and then the latter part, the um, some of the letters are actually from the chief elf who's called Ilbereth. Yeah. So it gets very Tolkien-esque towards mm. the end. 
and you'll be pleased um there was a rather splendid picture here of um uh the polar bear in his bath um, <laughs> oh i remember that my yeah. mother got that and started reading them to us and um and sending we were quite older by then but you know um and uh and the polar bear in his bath was a great favorite <laughs> in our household yes i think what the i polar find... bear generally is a character he is absolutely he's, he's, wonderful character. he's the strongest one of all of them and you get his um you get his runes at the end and his real name so do read on to the end but i think what's quite poignant i'd love to see an adaptation of this um tolkien estate if you're listening <laughs> let, let someone do this um i'd love to see an adaptation of this where it ends where it ends because it ends in 1939 and there's this very um sort of mournful but poignant feeling of what happens at the end of christmas and i think it captures that mood really well um and he's telling the his children what's happening in the world via his own story of father christmas um, saying, I expect you remember that some years ago we had trouble with the goblins and we thought we had settled it. Well, it broke out again this autumn, worse than it has been for centuries. And that's the last Father Christmas letter. Um, oh, so poignant. <clears throat> so he I was so that... good with those, you know, because he used to, he used to, um, you know, put the envelopes and make the yep. lovely stamps from the North Pole and everything, and then deliver them to the and eventually he 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 recruited the postman <laughs> and got the postman actually to deliver the letters in person to the children genuinely from the proper post bag <laughs> it was magnificent you know <laughs> so in the last section of that um of what we're talking about today i want to have a, just a brief look at how christmas appears in fantasy but also what we've done as writers with Christmas and the or the holiday season, shall we say? And I was thinking about just a very quick look at the famous Christmas stories, aside from the Christian narrative that appear on our screens every year. Loads of them are fantasy. You mentioned the Christmas ghost story. Well, of course, up there is the Christmas Carol. Yes, yeah. I, I try and read that every year. It's absolutely my favourite because it captures the heart of that sort of sense of redemption and um, the generosity. Yeah. But also, you also mentioned the Snow Queen, which again yeah. has that, not only the snowy landscapes, but the idea of the heart <coughs> melting, literally the heart melting, the shard of ice melting. Mm. Um, and then, of course, the Nutcracker. I've done an adaptation for kids of um, the Nutcracker for um, an educational reader. And for that, I went back to the original Hoffman tale, which is much more interesting than the ballet. The ballet kind of only does a tiny fragment of the story. Oh. But the, um, the, the thing about the Hoffman tale is the, it's exactly Lucy's dilemma that she has when she comes back from the wardrobe. No one believes her. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. the Nutcracker encapsulates that. Uh, the same within that story, the fact that no one believes the heroine that she's had all these adventures. So it's really worth going back to the original Nutcracker tale, as well as going to the ballet, which, you know, has a, another pleasure, I'm sure. But do you have any favourite Christmas stories that we haven't yet mentioned, particularly those of a fantasy um, genre that you bring out every year? 
Well, um, the Box of Delights is is my absolute must have, must must read again um, book mm. for Christmas. Um, and of course, it's just. I mean, I'm sure most people who who listen to this will, who are listening to this will actually have come across it. If not the book itself, the BBC adaptation, which is which is delightful. Um, but there's Lucy Boston's The Children of Green No, which oh yes, yeah, which is. For anybody who doesn't know it, it's about an imaginative little boy called Tolly who goes to stay with his grandmother in a house in the Fens or near the Fens, who makes playfellows out of the ghosts of the children who used to live there. This is based on the, the, man, the manor at Hemingford Grey, yeah. which was Lucy Boston's own house, a marvellous place. And of course, as Christmas approaches, it just gets more and more and more Christmassy, but also with the assistance of his his very benign little ghostly playfellows, he they have to encounter the demon yew tree in the garden. So there's 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 darkness as well. I, I always loved that book. Uh, Kat, just to just to pick up in case people haven't come mm. across the Box of Delights, particularly if you're um watching from America, it's by a writer called John Maysfield and it was originally published in 1935. Mm. So it's it's you know, he's a contemporary or just a little bit before in a sense. Um and yeah, and a bit like the um, the the Green No stories you mentioned, the Box of Delight definitely has the darkness as well as the light. It's a battle yeah. between the two. Absolutely. Beautifully uh, done. So does the Gospel. I mean, it seems to me, especially with Matthew, you know, that the point about the light in Christmas is that it's surrounded by darkness, just as the point about the warmth and the cosiness and the feasting and the rich fruit is because it's cold and snowy outside. Yeah. So if you just do something which is nothing but fluffy niceness, it'll go nowhere. You know, there has to be danger. Yes. There has to be a resistance to the darkness. All the best Christmas stories have got that. Yes. Uh, yes, I agree. You know, I think that's the Green No, I just to say the Green No stories are are um are absolutely fabulous. They're stunning, uh, absolutely stunning. Yeah. I had a wonderful adventure in relation to them in that um when I became and I came, you know, was, I I, I I was an English teacher for a while, it was my first job, and uh, I happened to be teaching in St Ives uh, near Huntingdon, not far from Hemingford Grey, where the house is, but I knew nothing of that. I had read the the the, the, the Green Nose stories at the same time that I read the Narnia ones, and therefore it was all in the same world. And I was talking to our, our the head of the English department there and saying, you know, I want to do the children of Green Nose, and he said, oh, well, you ought to go, go over and... Um, go over to the house then and have a word with Lucy Boston. I can give you an introduction. And he might as well have said, by the way, the wardrobe is in my room. Yes. Yes. It was exactly, and that, so I did. And um, I was just thrilled mm. because the house is just as it, and Peter yes. Boston's lovely drawings. And Lucy Boston was exactly as I'd imagined Mrs. Old now. And in mm. fact, I very, by great good fortune, came to know her quite well. And at one point, um, she she asked me if I would stay there for a while and be her amanuensis. She was writing um, poetry about uh, wonderful poetry at that time, but I just got engaged to Maggie, and we were we were being engaged. We were about to get married, so I I said to her, my my um, my dear, you have a rival, and and she's ninety. Um, you know, <laughs> I've I've frozen. I don't know if I'm. Oh. No, you're still before. going, Malcolm. Don't worry. Oh, okay. So she's so anyway. So so Maggie came over and met her, and we had a lovely time walking in the rose garden. How wonderful! Yeah, I regard her as one of the great writers. She, yeah, she she's a marvelous writer, absolutely marvelous. Um, but I have a couple more. So this is um, Leon Garfield's response to the Christmas Carol, Mister Corbett's Ghost, and it's well worth reading, I think. 
and um can i go on i've got yeah one because i think we should always leave people with a reading list okay definitely this is very new catherine catherine fishes the clockwork crow is absolutely enchanting there are two sequels and it follows the adventures of a little girl a victorian orphan who uh takes a winter train ride to uh, a, an old welsh mansion where she has to outwit the dangerous welsh fairies the tulith tag um if that's how you pronounce them uh, with the aid of the crotchety clockwork crow and i highly recommend them i think it's always good to remember that we don't stop with um tolkien and lewis we're, we're going on to look at new writing just to um we're going to hop into harry potter just briefly because of course i think um there is a big strong association still with harry potter and christmas mm. thanks to the fact that uh jk rowling does a school year and yes, exactly. year yeah. in features Christmas heavily. So, of course, you've got all the images. And I think her use of it shows the side that you either do the full-on celebration, but you also use it to contrast the loneliness of yes. the character. And that, I think, works particularly well with Harry when he's outside of... That's the bit which I think is most poignant, and when he's outside of everybody else's celebration. Hmm. So if you're thinking about using it, if anyone's listening to this and is um doing a fantasy world where christmas fits that's a really good use of it is to do that yes absolutely. But malcolm and kath i'm now going to put you on the spot as writers to find out um well a you could recommend one of your books as a christmas present if you want <laughs> kath i think you should definitely do that but malcolm you've written a whole advent book which i actually spent one advent doing i think last year uh yeah. so please tell us about that yeah so this is uh called um Waiting on the Word, a poem a day for Advent, Christmas and Epiphany. And it's an anthology. I mean, it's mostly classic poems. And it has one or two of my own, but it's... But what I do is I give you the poem, but then I write a very short, reflective essay. I find that people find it quite helpful to have something opened out for them. And I try and take the, the sort of Advent journey, um, which in a sense, of course, starts really, if one's thinking of the Advent of Christ at Christmas. I mean, there are other senses of Advent too, but if we're one to think of the Advent of Christ at Christmas, it has to start with the Annunciation, really, and uh, Mary's various preparations. So I have some Annunciation poems. I have the, the great Milton poem in there that, I, that, that, that Lewis riffed on so much. I have my own sequence um, of seven poems on the great Advent antiphons, the seven great O's, which I, I love, which are these kind of mystical titles of Christ. Um, I have a poem of my own uh, about about Christmas uh, Day and so on in it. Um, uh, but I then go on into uh, into Epiphany and uh, you know take the story forward and um, I wrote a poem about the the wise men coming. Um, and uh, I sometimes chosen secular poems as well, not just directly religious ones that are I think observations of the season that just enter into the spirit of the whole thing there's a wonderful poem by the contemporary poet greville lindop about watching moons change in the in the winter sky and and wanting to give each of these moons in their different phases to his wife you know and uh, you know having to sort of give her the, the, the poem with the moons in them instead um so yeah i really enjoyed doing it and it's it seems to sort of continue to kind of live a life of its own it also gave me a chance to to bring in some poets who i think have been unjustly neglected i mean i've got a couple of poems in here by ruth pitter who i think is a really fine poet uh 
was much admired by Lewis. Um, there's a beautiful poem of hers, a mystical poem called A Bird in the Tree I've Got Here. Um, so, yeah, it was very good, good, good fun to put together. And um, it seems to sort of have carried on with a life of its own. And I, I, what I did for people who enjoy reading it but would like to hear the poems read, people have sometimes said to me, it's nice if I read the poems. So I have recorded all these poems and on my blog over the Advent season in a sort of weekly post, I post up the recordings of all that week's poems and the texts of them. So people who are reading the book can sort of press a button and hear me recite the poem, which sometimes opens it out a bit. Okay, we'll put a, a link to that in the show notes, as they call it on these things, um, so people can find those. Kath, now I've got your book here. <laughs> I'm going to bring it in. There we go. Um, so this is a very good pre present to anybody who is remembering their childhood and their reading of um, the Narnia stories in particular. Tell us a little bit about this and what, what you cover. Well, um, so because I was so, um, so, so passionate about the Narnia books when I was a little girl, um, I, when I came to the end of them, and I'm sure many other children did this too, um, I wrote a book of my own stories about Narnia. I was nine, ten, that sort of age. And that sort of got me writing, that got me writing seriously. I never really stopped writing after that. I just carried on writing books. I mean, loads of unpublished manuscripts upstairs. Unpublished and unpublishable, I should say. Um, so Spare Oom, it's called, got my own copy. It's, I think this may be back to front, but it says from Spare Oom to Wardrobe, Travels in Narnia with my nine-year-old self. Um, and um, it's it's sort of product of, of the gift of the silver chair that my mother gave me so long ago, I suppose. Um, so I looked at my, I sort of explored my own childhood memories of reading the book, which I remember very, very clearly, rather as Malcolm can, often quite exactly where I was and what I was doing when I was reading the books for the first time. But also I thought I'd, it would be interesting to sort of have a dialogue between myself as a child and myself now. Um, and as an adult, sort of tease out some of the threads from the extraordinarily rich tapestry of references that Lewis weaves into those books, which we have touched upon. Uh, I mean, not just from Christianity, but also from Plato, Greek mythology, fairy tales, medieval literature, Bunyan, Milton, uh, you know, George MacDonald, you name it, it just goes on and on and on. And I, I find that fascinating. And um, I think the book is, is reasonably readable. So that's, that's, that's my most recent book. Um, as far as myself as a, as a novelist goes, um, this is a few years old now, but it's called Dark Angels. Um, it was published by HarperCollins and it's a middle grade book for children. And um, do I, it's, it's basically, it's a Christmas, it's a Christmassy book it's it's called the shadow hunt in the united states um it's a winter book set, set in the welsh marches in the late 12th century and it begins in autumn and comes to christmas climax of snow danger ghosts devils elves and angels so have i got time to read a tiny bit yeah the beauty of this kind of format is that we don't have to cut to a commercial break or anything so okay you can just keep um, going there's a bit um towards the end it's not the end you can see, uh, where my two characters, there's a boy called Wolf and a girl called Nest. And um, 
for various reasons, they've agreed to meet on the top of the tower of the Motten Bailey Castle, La Motte Rouge, which is where they both are living at the moment, on Christmas morning, because they've been told that if you go there on Christmas morning at sunrise, you might be able to see the angels dancing in the sun. So this is a bit where it goes, a wolf swept snow from the rail. They leaned on it looking east. Every moment the colour in the sky grew stronger. A vast cloud stood high over Cromore. It flushed rose and peach and gold and began to brighten beyond colour into pure light. Out of nowhere, a small wind ruffled their faces. Christus natus est, Christ is born. Far below their feet, a, croc a cock crowed wild and shrill. A goblet of fire, too bright to look at, rose over the rim of the world. Fields and woods leaped to life. Rays of light struck across the valley, and the snow-crusted edge of the rail where they leaned turned all to diamonds. A lump came into Wolf's throat. Poised here on the tower, high above the world, his hard decisions and troubles seemed tiny and unimportant. Nest grabbed his hand. Oh, Wolf, she breathed. Look! Above the joyful blazing disk of the sun, the sky was like hammered silver. White sparks appeared in it, like morning stars. Wolf squinted between the bars of his fingers. Far, far away, leaving streaks and curls of fire, the angels danced like a flock of birds before the sun, their immeasurably distant wings flashing. So that's a Christmas oh, moment. Lovely. Thank you. So I suppose I should now say now for something completely different because I was thinking I don't have a Christmas book and I realised I actually do. Oh, good. Uh, one of my I, I write under three names and one of them is Joss Sterling, and also published by Harper Collins. I have a murder mystery at Christmas. Is that is that traditional? I'm Called sure, Red. Yes. <laughs> um, and it's uh, actually inspired by the area in which Tolkien's house is actually situated even though we didn't manage to get the house i'm fascinated by that area and all the arrival of particularly russian oligarchs buying up the property around there which is partly why it was so expensive and i think maybe it was me working things through um i've written a murder mystery set in houses around there but the presiding fantasy genius is actually alice in wonderland um con the connection being to lewis carroll uh, and in fact that's how you solve the puzzle is knowing what happens in what order in <laughs> Alice in Wonderland. So that's called Red House. Um, but there are dead bodies. So um, it's, you know, it's an adult novel rather than a, a Christmas family read. Thank you so much, Malcolm and Catherine, for um, doing this chat with us today. I have really learned a lot and I've thoroughly enjoyed talking to you about um always winter and never christmas because i think we've actually tippled over from the always winter into christmas and the crocuses i like your word i like your word tipple there yeah the other season you tipped over into it but if it's christmas you should definitely tipple tipple definitely yes so thank you very much and uh it's very kind of you to give us all this time so thank you and goodbye thank you for enjoying thank you very much we've we've enjoyed it i certainly have yeah Yes, I have too. Thank you.